political process is dead is dead you know like we cannot put ourselves through trying to appeal to those people anymore to the government and the politicians because we've seen the closest we got was completely taken away and and that's what pushed palestine action along we're doing this to shut down these factories and we will take the consequences because for us it's it's incomparable to what people who are on the other end of these weapons have to face um but at the same time through that process we're exposing the hypocrisy of the state and of how companies like Elbit are not being investigated for the crimes the war crimes they commit but the activists who try and stop them who throw pain rather than spill blood are the ones on trial you don't need everyone to come along with you you just need enough people to be committed to that chain Hi, this is the Ignoramus Guide. I'm your host, Ileana Chan, and I'm here with a very special guest, Hoda Omari of um, at pal underscore action, the direct action Palestinian, uh, Palestinian action group. Did I even say that correctly? Palestine um, action. Palestine action, direct action group. Um, so you're half Iraqi, half Palestinian. Is that how you got to you know what what sort of politicized you and made you come up with this uh, direct action group um so i think growing up with Pal uh, palestinian and iraqi background definitely politicized me as a as a as a child um i think it's hard not to be um in a family like that um i think i was always very aware of what was happening in, in Palestine and Iraq and also the role that Britain, the country I grew up, played in that. Um, but I wasn't necessarily an activist, I wouldn't say. I was politically aware, but I wasn't necessarily politically active. I would go, you know, I'd go to all the big demos of my family. Um, mm -hmm. But it was only really when I was uh, I think 20, 21, and I saw what was happening in Syria and the refugee crisis, as they called it, um, in Europe. And it was around then that I decided, kind of on a whim, um, that I would go out to Lesbos, where all of the refugees were entering after fleeing and um, leaving from Turkey, basically, to come to Europe. And I'd raised a lot of money online in that week and I didn't really have a plan. I just knew that I wanted to try and do what I could to help because I was shocked at what I was seeing on the news. And, and when I got there, um, I saw thousands of people coming in every night and you know they'd come in on these dinghy boats. And I expected some sort of like, you know, massive response from organizations and a lot of help available for these people. Um, and I was shocked when I got there to see that that wasn't really in place. In fact, the um, UNHCR um, was basically they would clock off at 2 a.m. So there was and this is when most of the people would come in. And so straight away, I was I, you know, threw myself um, into into trying to help people as much as I could. And, you know, there was people who were coming in, suffering from hyperthermia. I had to um, try and help people, you know, and, and I wasn't a doctor or anything, but my mum my was a doctor. 
So I'd be calling her and she'd be on the phone telling me what to do in this situation. And I, and I remember just seeing all these, seeing what was happening and so many different events at that time and realizing that I could, I was helping, you know, a few families with the money that I had to be able to get through um, to their journey, but that this was like a, a symptom of a much deeper issue, one that roots back to where I, where I lived, which was Britain. And I remember, you know, seeing these people and not seeing any difference between them and me, except that I had a British passport. Um, there was one specific night, actually, I remember quite well when, um, basically when they would come in from Turkey, they would have to queue and they would have to get papers from this island, this Greek island, Lesbos, in order to go on to mainland Athens and mainland Greece. And at that place, which was called Maria Camp, they were only, people were only supposed to stay there for one night. Um, and there were people queuing throughout the night to get these papers so they could move on to the next journey. And there was probably about a thousand people in the queue and someone, and it was probably around 2, 3 a.m. Someone came running up to me and saying, you know, you have to help get these people into a, an orderly line. Um, and so when I went down there, basically the Greek police were shouting and screaming at people who didn't necessarily speak Greek. I didn't speak Greek. You know, most people don't speak Greek if you're not from Greece. Um, and they were saying, if these people don't get in an orderly line within 15, 20 minutes, we're going to start beating everyone up. And they were as, as cold and frank as that. And so I was rushing and, you know, because I could speak Arabic to try and get these people into a into a into a line and then uh, within five ten minutes someone came and they had their the child in their arms who was unconscious um and I thought they were dead so I ended up running around this camp trying to find a doctor um whilst having in my head that these people were going to start being beaten up and there was a hardly any volunteers on the on the camp at the time Eventually they found a doctor and the child was okay. Um, but I remember at the end of that night, I just I just broke down and I was, you know, um, a mess for a few hours. And I was just in, in disbelief of, of humanity and how, you know, the, how people were being treated in Europe after fleeing wars created mostly by Europe and Western countries um, and the lack of regards for other, other human beings. And uh, I, I think, and then I, I remember that night just thinking, you know, that this isn't enough, you know, that, that, that charity work and et cetera is necessary only because what happens in politics requires it to be necessary, right? And then actually it's the root cause um, that you have to tackle, and then yeah, I think that that moment politicized me, and and um, I, yeah, and then at that point, it was impossible to not to just return to a normal life, you know, or just just going by your day to day and brushing out these issues from your head because you know people's lives are at stake all of the time. That's an amazing story, and um. Such a better answer that I could have imagined, considering how much I bungled the question, which really minimized, um, I think, your achievements. 
just to say like, oh, are you Israeli? Um, <laughs> I mean, not Israeli, Palestinian, Iraqi, and hence, of course, you know, of course you're an activist and you've achieved um, so much with this, you know, it was a ridiculous question really, <laughs> because what you've done, I think with um, Palestine action is unprecedented in the UK, isn't it? It's, we haven't really seen anything like that. Um, can you speak about how uh, it was formed and what your idea was and a little bit about, because it was only formed two years ago. So could you give, you, give us a little history and mm. how it started and what's happening now? Yeah, definitely. So um, so personally for myself, so from that moment on, I'd got involved in student campaigning. I was a student at the time and um, I was searching about my university and um, Israel and what links they had. And I was just Googling one night, you know, as most people do. And I found that um, they had, they were investing basically millions of pounds into this company, Caterpillar, who supply the um, Israeli army with bulldozers, which are weaponized and used to demolish Palestinian homes and communities. Um, and again, I was, I was pretty annoyed at that, that, you know, I don't think we should be paying student fees anyway, but we're forced to pay student fees towards an institution and then realizing that your student fees, your money is going towards the destruction of your um, own people's homes in Palestine. And so I became very involved in set up a group in my university and I would go around other universities and then eventually <clears throat> create some sort of database which showed which university invest in what companies. And, <clears throat> and the ironic thing about all of this was that um, I would, you know, get the university's investment policy, which said, oh, you're not supposed to invest in companies which are complicit in human rights abuses, right? So I was like, well, this should be easy. I'll just prove, show the evidence of how this is complicit in human rights abuses and violations of international law. And um, it wasn't that easy. You know, we had to build build a whole a full blown campaign. Um, and and I was trying to do similar things and help other students at other universities to tackle this complicity. And I think at that point is when it really opened my eyes to how complicit Britain was, not just through our government, but through all of our institutions in um, Israel's apartheid regime and the colonization of Palestine. And, um, and eventually after I left university, I got a job at an NGO, which was doing work on Palestine. And I'd taken it to like a whole new level of coordinating national campaigns around um, divestment, for example, getting HSBC to divest from um, Israeli arms companies and and other campaigns like that. And at the same time, I also lobbied a lot of MPs and I did like, you know, I did all of it basically in terms of like what your, what the democratic process says is your route to change, right? Like, and, and it wasn't just me, there was hundreds if not thousands of others trying the same routes to get change. Um, and it was actually around, and then I came quite involved in, the labor politics things under Corbyn. And, um, and that was quite a changing moment, specifically when it was on the, on the 2019 manifesto, there was um, a policy for an arms embargo between Britain and Israel, which meant everything because that meant, that would be the first Western country to actually sanction Israel and not allow us to be part of 
open complicit in, in the genocide of Palestinians. Um, and then <clears throat> that didn't, obviously didn't work. We all know what happened in 2019. Um, Corbyn lost massively. A lot had to do with political backstabbing and, and deliberately making sure that policies like that could not happen. Um, and I think it was shortly after that that um, myself and others for different motivations realized that if we wanted change and if we wanted an arms embargo, um, that we would have to do it ourselves and that the only option that was left, the only viable option was direct action. Um, and so that's when, and that's when we decided to launch Palestine Action in July, 2020. Um, and that was targeting um, Albert Systems, which I can explain a bit more about, which is Israel's largest arms firm. And yeah, for, for us, I mean, it started off with just a few of us who were just determined that um, we could build a movement like this that was in solidarity with Palestinians, that was targeting complicity and targeting imperialism. And um, I think you, you, you are right in the sense it was unprecedented. And then a lot of people may have thought that even though we'd seen things like Extinction Rebellion, you know, become really big, right? There was thousands of people risking yeah. arrest, right, for the environment. But that, my ignorance with that one, it's like I wasn't clear on what they achieved. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think that's my my question about them, whereas I think, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, do you know anything that they do? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we're quite people often try and like conflate the two because they see like oh arrest for this arrest for that but it is quite different our approach so extinction rebellions approach was you know mass disruption but it was still appealing to the government right it was trying to it was finding a pressure point for the government in order to get their demands whereas for us we've completely given up on that idea of appealing to this government or any other government because they're essentially the oppressors for Palestinians, right? They've been um, embedded in this situation for a very long time. And so for us, it's, we go directly to these companies and disrupt the companies from operating in the arms factories in order to shut them down and bypass the government. But I think what Extinction Rebellion did, <clears throat> it, because it launched before us, I think it normalized this idea of um, risking your liberty for, for something that's greater than yourself. And a lot of people thought when they saw Extinction Rebellion, well, yes, people do that because it's the environment and, you know, there's a lot of this narrative around saving your own grandkids and a little bit of, like, you're doing it to preserve yourselves and the people around you, right? There was a lot of the narrative, whereas why would people do that for people that are in another country or a country that we even colonized or whatever but you know that's just not the case people uh, people are um understand um i think more and more that and i think that's why what we did was unprecedented because it was sustained direct action at arms companies that were complicit in the colonization of palestine um and going for it day after day week after week to the point where they can't um to the point where they can't operate anymore and so so when we but when we started it wasn't necessarily like we knew 
exactly what was going to happen. It was just that we knew what we wanted to happen, right? We wanted to shut this company down. Um, and so we went to the headquarters at first and it was just myself and a few others. And we'd um, like, you know, I got cardboard and cut it out at home. It was a really crap stencil <laughs> and some paint. And we just walked into the headquarters through paint and spray painted and got someone to video it and it went really far. And then we just kept doing the same action um, over and over again. And then people were watching and going, I, I want to do this. And it was like people were waiting for something where they could really show that solidarity. Um, and, and, and I think people wanted to be part of something they saw could be effective. You could see the, the direct result of it. And I think that's what I, and I think when I started doing direct action, <clears throat> I, I felt, you know, you don't do it for yourself, but you do feel empowered, right? You do feel liberated because it's no longer having to like ask someone else or persuade someone else on and then always hitting a brick wall. It was just like, I'll just do it. I'll just go in and I'll shut this place down, you know? And I think there is a, I mean, because I think when we're talking about uh, it being unprecedented, like some people might, who, who are not familiar with the case might be like, there are people who chain themselves to things. And yes, there are courageous people that do put themselves in harm's way for the greater good, et cetera. But I think what you specifically did so cleverly and, and, um, and effectively was actually going after this specific uh, company, which you, you mentioned, but like, just to reiterate, you went after this specific company, you affected essentially the um, business stability of the company, making it hard for them to operate, making it therefore hard for them to maintain their, their like offices here in the UK, right? And so it sort of affected, unfortunately in a capitalistic system, <laughs> Effect, yeah. affected their bottom line and that's why it was so effective um what is the what is happening now with the factory and the i think there's there were were there three factories or yeah so she has this, i could explain a bit about albert in in general um and where they are today so um so i think and you are exactly right. Like in terms of how these companies operate, you know, capitalism works that profits come before everything else, right? And in order to affect those companies, you have to harm their bottom line because that is the only language they speak. Um, and so, so Elbit, is actually, so it's Israel's largest arms firm, um, and they were actually formed in 1966. And basically, they were formed in Israel, and their sole purpose was at the time was to arm the militia in order to ethnically cleanse the indigenous population of Palestine. Um, it was actually just a year after they were formed that my own family was forced out with brutal force, with bullets probably made by this company. And uh, they actually market their weapons as, <clears throat> as battle tested because Gaza, which is one of the most densely populated areas on earth, um, people are literally trapped there. They've been described as the world's largest open air prison because people can't leave and they can't, people can't enter. And majority of the population there are children and refugees who've already been displaced from other parts of Palestine. 
So you have these people who are captive, a captive population in Gaza, Palestinians, who routinely bombarded by Israel, um, attacked. They have their you know, schools, hospitals, their infrastructure, their only power plant is routinely destroyed by, um, by, by missiles, attacks, and drones that are made by Albert Systems. And they use this every time. I mean, people often hear about Palestine only when it's at when you have a really intense bombardment, right? But it's it's happening all of the time. It's just not um, it's just not shown in the news. But they never talk about the fact that it's companies like Albert who are using these attacks as opportunities to test their weapons out. It's sickening, I know. Um, and so then they actually market them all as battle tested or combat proven. And then they sell them on to other oppressive regimes across the world. So basically, if Palestine wasn't illegally occupied and colonized, then Albert wouldn't have, wouldn't exist. So the whole business model is based on the destruction of Palestine and then using this to show other oppressive regimes, look how great we've kill the Palestinians, you can use these weapons <clears throat> in, your, in your place. But not only are they making these drones, um, which is kind of one of the things they're infamous for, um, these drones are not only used to attack and kill Palestinians, which they've been used a lot to do, but they are surveilling people all of the time, especially in Gaza. So if you're a Palestinian in Gaza, they literally will talk about the sound of these drones all of the time above their heads. And so you can imagine if you have a weapon that's been used to destroy um, your neighbors or your family, and the same weapon is above you all of the time. Um, and this is how Albert, this is Albert's kind of like their main um this is, you know, this is kind of what they do over over the people in Gaza. But in addition, and and that got worse actually. In May 2021, there was a very heavy bombardment of Gaza in the space. Of, I think it was 11 days. They killed hundreds of Palestinians, um, and they started to use artificial intelligence drones for the first time, which was and it was swarms of drones. So normally you have one drone, one soldier, <clears throat> someone very far away who's just behind a computer screen and gets to, you know, decide who, who lives or dies and often they kill civilians. Um, and then now they've made it. So you have swarms of drones, which are mostly autonomous and they only require one person for this whole swarm of drones to operate it. And they were using this in May and they called it, the military said, this is the world's first artificial intelligence war. Um, and Elbit at that time weren't even just supplying these weapons. An Israeli general had said that they were sitting alongside them conducting the strikes. So this is a private arms manufacturer conducting these strikes with the military. Um, and even people, you know, in the arms industry were going, this is, this is too far. But now the British, the British um, Ministry of Defense has now bought these drones right after they were used in Gaza. So it's just, I mean, in terms of like the, um, but in addition to that, you have things like the apartheid wall. So Israel built an apartheid wall in, um, 
in Palestine and West Bank. And what they did was it was basically to keep Palestinians captive and at the same time use it as a way of stealing more land from the Palestinians because they would just build this wall through Palestinian villages and, you know, say, that's it, your Palestinian village is gone, you're not in the wall. Um, and so Albert built a lot of technology for this wall. And then the same technology is now being used um, to, for the uh, for Trump's wall between the US and Mexico. Um, and the same drones that were used in Gaza are now being used to stop and surveil refugees who are trying to seek refuge in Britain and Europe and other places. So like, it's, it's very clear that Palestine is often used as a laboratory of how you can oppress a whole population and then they're sent to other places. So in, in Britain specifically, when we started, they had 10 sites, um, five factories, two headquarters, um, you know, you think you only need one, but they had two, one in London, one in Bristol, and then they were operating out of three um, Royal Air Force bases where they were training British military, um, British soldiers. And uh, so when we started, there was 10, and, um, and we were targeting the London headquarters um, at first, for the first few weeks, um, and actually, we, we, there was a meeting almost straight away between the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs, Israel's Defence Minister, and Dominic Raab, who was Foreign Secretary of Britain. And Israel basically said, you have to crush this movement. You have to crush Palestine action. Um, <clears throat> and when we saw that, we were like, OK, we're doing the right thing here. You know, I've never seen a kind of response that strong so quickly into it. And I think they understood if people no longer had this obstacle of appealing to the government that we are able to lobby, et cetera, then we can't stop this. Um, and I think that's what was so powerful about direct action. Um, but we also went out to the factories. So they're often in odd places like Staffordshire or the north of England. And um, the factory in Oldham was in a in a place where there was a high Kashmiri population, there was a high Asian population. Kashmir is occupied and they often use Albert's weapons against the occupied people of Kashmir. So the locals were up in arms about this factory being there. And after about um, a year and a half of taking direct action at the site, there was, a, there was a kind of campaign beforehand, but it didn't really have much direct action involved. And so there was sustained direct action. And then um, in January this year, um, they, it closed down. And they said that basically they sold it off at a massive loss. Um, they sold it for 9 million after buying it for 15 million 10 years before. And so that was um, an extraordinary achievement that one of these factories was forced to go. And they were, it was really under, you know, quite intense actions like people from people um, doing lock-ons to shut them down you know blocking the front door so they couldn't go to work to people climbing onto the roof and um, damaging the infrastructure um, just to two Kashmiris locals went inside and just destroyed all of their machinery um, and it, it became pretty clear that even though they were investing so much in security and they had the police surveilling the site they couldn't stop people from doing it, from taking action. Um, and it became, 
too much for them and then they, they left and so that was um you know I think that was an extraordinary achievement and and we didn't realize that we were necessarily going to get that kind of success so quickly and then just a few months ago in London um again it was targeted regularly but for for six weeks there was kind of a focus on that site of people taking action once or twice a week quite simple you know just people in these like um in these tubes and locked onto each other blocking the front doors and throwing paint over the building um twice a week constantly for six weeks and eventually they they had to leave and had to abandon their London headquarters so um it's definitely it's, it's definitely uh, working how do because the first thing maybe because I've lived in the states for so long the first thing I'm thinking is like the police coming in and like shooting everyone <laughs> or I guess here just uh I mean arresting everybody or you know so how um did you have to deal with that sort of thing like arrests and and being charged and things like that yeah yeah we definitely dealt with a lot of that no shooting from them thankfully um actually it's I mean it's not that funny but when I was on the roof of one of the factories in Shenstone my mum was like they're gonna shoot you harder I don't know it's not Iraq it's okay um she was okay in the end but um actually I mean we know when we're taking this type of action that um you are you know we do it to shut down these factories and we're willing to take the consequences and often that does mean arrest although there are people who take action uh, covertly um at complicit companies and don't necessarily risk arrest every time um but what we saw at the start was we were definitely we were getting arrested quite routinely and they were raiding our homes um quite a lot and um actually for for myself and and Richard um we were I think there was a concerted effort at the start of the movement to try and uh, intimidate us as much as possible. And and I, I think it was a tactic because while you're still growing and relatively small, then, you know, they can get away with a lot more. Whereas when you build a platform, it's more difficult for them to, to you know, to do that kind of, use those kind of tactics. So pretty quickly after we did this action on the rooftop of one of the factories, uh, when we were there for three days and we destroyed the place basically and um they had put a um a camera the police had put a camera in a primary school opposite where we lived facing our front door um and yeah and then I, I actually it was noticed by a friend of ours who was a filmmaker who said have you seen that camera there that's not a normal camera mm. and so I called the school and I said you know what's this camera doing pointing at our front door and they said oh the one that the police came and put up and then quickly they were passing it on to the someone else said and I said oh we can't talk about that da, 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 da. quickly changed their tune um and then we were we were stopped by um uh, counter counter-terrorism so it's schedule seven counter-terrorism legislation uh, basically if you travel to any like if you're on any ports or airports they have this legislation where they can stop you under this legislation and it means you have no right to no comment you don't have a right to a solicitor 
you have to give all your passwords over, whatever else. Um, and so we were stopped under that and interrogated for, um, this was quite early on in part of action for about three or four hours and then arrested for refusing to give over my laptop password. And because we had a stencil, um, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like we, yeah, and um, and that was like, yeah. We had there was a stencil. We had a stencil with us, and like it was literally just like, and they were like, "Oh, you were obviously on the way to an action," and I was like, "No, we weren't. We were traveling. You know what I mean? Like, if we're gonna go do an action, are we really gonna take all of our bags and everything with us? You know? <laughs> you bring your spray can with you while traveling." <laughs> I don't think that was great but it was just the stencil and like we had the t-shirts and like other things. <laughs> the idea of that like you have to bring out all your equipment including you know everything that would implicate you <laughs> yeah yeah I was like please give us a break we wouldn't do that but uh, but yeah I mean it, it was it was ironic because it's like this is counter-terrorism and they're there arresting you for having a stencil on you um oh God. but like they were very like obvious like they, they, it was both me and Richard so Richard was we were separated straight away and then they um, they told Richard straight away you know why you're here because of Palestine action they told me an hour in because I was still like okay maybe it was just a random stop you know <laughs> <laughs> just, just hoping in my head it was just a random stop or whatever and then I quickly realized I've never been like, randomly stopped before you've never been randomly stopped I know I, I don't think there was such a thing as random stops I don't think it yeah I find that yeah I don't think why would where would they get the time to randomly stop and also purposefully stop that's like a lot of stopping you know yeah. but okay but you well I think because when I when I travel with my brothers and stuff especially because you know my brother was born in Iraq and we'd always get randomly stopped yeah, so I don't random, think it was random it? you know but like yeah, that's what they that. That's what they say to you. Yeah. Oh, random. The only brown people in the queue get stopped. You know, it's like it's, it doesn't. It stops being random when it happens every time. You know. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, and then, and then after that, shortly after that, we had uh, raids in our and where we lived. Um, it was like they raided it twice in one day, and uh, they arrested Richard for blackmail. Um. What? which was shocking and then and then it, during this process of arresting Richard for blackmail of what was clearly a sell-off because you know he was running he went out for a run and then they then the police officers said oh stop or something and, and he didn't stop he just kept running and he went home and then they were like oh knocking on and they tried to make it look like it was just a random coincidence and then suddenly there's all these plain-clothed officers around the back of this church where we were staying um and and anyway, and then they took his, they took him, they took my passport, even though I wasn't under arrest. Um, I eventually got it back a few months later. But in general, like, I mean, that was a period of time when they, they were really kind of throwing the book at us, so to speak. Um, but a lot of people, like when you do an action, does end up in an in arrest a lot of the time, mostly because the the aim is often to occupy a site for as long as possible. So if you're occupying a factory or an office, then often people stay there until they're forcibly removed. And it's this idea of resist till the very end, you know, and then you'll have to force us to, to, to reopen this place. We won't, um, you know, you're not going to 
take us that easily. So often it does lead to arrests. And then um, sometimes people get charged, sometimes they don't. Um, and then we fight it through the courts. But that's a whole other element to it because it's it's kind of like the, the action doesn't stop at the action. Often it continues throughout the trial process, throughout pushing for disclosure and fighting to prove Albert is guilty basically in the courts as well as at their factories. Oh, I see. So that's actually considered part of the action is what happens in the trials and what uh, what information you can disclose during that time and what media coverage you can get um, yeah. in the trials. Okay, yeah. So do you have, um, like usually when I think about these types of actions too, I think of maybe legal um, organizations like the ACLU, you know, like in the US, but nowadays i think of a lot of those organizations as compromised mm -hmm. um so is that something that you have like do you have um organizations behind you in terms of um when you're fighting uh legal action stuff like that well we have so we have got quite a lot of support um from i would say most of you know, grassroots groups and individuals. Um, for us in Palestine Action, like it's key that like every every court date, from a plea hearing to just a, you know, boring hearing about the admin stuff of the trial, there's always always support outside, um, and protest outside as well. Because you know, for us, it's yeah. like like you said, it, it, there is the media coverage element. But there's also the element that we're doing this to shut down these factories and we will take the consequences because for us it's it's incomparable to what people who are on the other end of these weapons have to face um but at the same time through that process we're exposing the hypocrisy of the state and of how companies like albert are not being investigated for the crimes the war crimes they commit but the activists who try and stop them who throw pain rather than spill blood are the ones on trial um, but just to give a little bit of history. So before person action, there was different actions and um, against Elbert. It wasn't as sustained and it wasn't as disruptive, but every time no one would go to trial <clears throat> and it became very clear that if you took action against Elbert, you weren't going to court because they didn't want it to go to court. They didn't, when people would ask for things like disclosure, cases would get dropped. Um, but when Palestine Action launched, it kind of forced them into this dilemma of, well, if you don't take them to court, they're just going to destroy our factories and we won't have anything left. Um, but if you do take them to the court and lose, then we have no legal protection in this country either because juries or whatever are acquitting people. Um, and even if they do find us guilty, right, if as long as we know that history is going to vindicate us and, you know, you stay resolute in that, um, but what's happened so far is that in the trials, the first trial, people were found not guilty. Um, we've had a number of trials now, 90% of which have actually been acquitted <coughs> in those trials. Um, but in terms of organisation support, like, I'd say we find our, like, most of our base of support in the grassroots and... Um, NGOs haven't been the most helpful um, um, 
in that in that kind of support but I think we found our own mechanisms within Palestine Action to provide that support and we have amazing lawyers right and they are you know um Kelly solicitors who work on nearly every case and they are brilliant at you know maintaining that support and and um and fighting our case and producing reports and Albert systems they're basically experts in Palestine Action right now so they are um you know so we have we have that but I think for the in terms of like those NGO type figures um we're seeing a bit more support now but when we launched Palestine Action and for the first two years which is majority of the time we've existed a lot of NGOs were um very quiet about us and I think it was and I and I think when something new comes along and is quite radical um and is achieving things then it's it's the complete opposite to the kind of like let's set up an organization where we're going to be doing this for, for tens of years and there's not necessarily that same urgency um or that same and and I think to become like an established organization as well you kind of you, you give up a lot of that kind of like idea of radical activism because you want to keep your status so you don't want to whatever you know you're staying I'm comfortable as well like your tax-free status or whatever it's probably something yeah. like that um and it also kind of it's just ironic as you're talking it makes me realize like you know here in the uk they've kind of made protesting illegal they've made um like us just you know, um, I actually want to talk to you about the Al Jazeera documentary on the labor files, but um, they've made it so that we're looking electorally like there's no point in voting, it feels like, you know, um, although I do want to talk to you again about the Green Party. I saw some of your tweets, um, but direct action seems to be like the most logical step because if they're going to take away things like peaceful protests like it's kind of pointless I mean not peaceful protests um but protests that cause disruption are illegal so now it's like and you know and voting for politicians are pointless if they're all bought over by um all these huge corporations then how do we affect change you know and um it's like this does seem to be I was reading an article um, that you tweeted um, in the investment monitor and I thought it was really interesting because I am assuming it's some sort of financial <laughs> magazine I don't know but it talks about that um, um, it talks about uh, the the way in which it's kind of starting um, what is the word that's not like a, a platitude, but you, you know, it's not trend, but like you can see how you mentioned in the article that people in the US are also talking to you about how did you do this and how can we replicate it in the US? So it just seems like a logical step. And mm. I mean, what is your advice to people in the US? Because it's slightly different there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is like um, every, I think when people see Palestine action in Britain, they might think that there's some myth that actually that the consequences just aren't that great or it's easier to do it here. And to a certain level, it's different in every single region, right? But we are, I mean, I think it's already a fascist state. I think it has been for a long time, especially when it comes to like 
imperialism and other things around those issues. Um, but like you're right, when you start seeing protests becoming illegal and basic things like you can't have noise in protest or whatever, then in a sense, it's 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 you know it's scary to see the trend, but at the same time, it's like, well, if you leave, there's no other option. Um, and if you have, if people are facing arrest for ha doing a protest, then why don't we just shut down an arms factory and lock on? You know, it's like you you, you they've left you and it's it's the same risk. Fact, like the way that you're talking about the strategy, you're more likely to get charged and put in prison maybe for a protest right now than actual action against a company that does not want to disclose documents so yeah that's kind of the irony of this i mean obviously you are sacrificing yeah quite a bit here let's not minimize that but i think there is some irony in that as well um, yeah no definitely definitely it's almost like and i think when they put in these type of laws that these repressive laws it will it does end up in a backlash where people become more radicalized by it you know and more understanding of okay you know this is the situation you there's no longer this facade of this democratic civilized society right you take away rights to protest you know people become more aware of these companies and how they operate and the role britain plays in in the world which is not a very good one you know um and and it, it ends up actually making our movement stronger even if the effect is to do the opposite because people become a bit more resilient throughout the process um but i think like in terms of internationally i think the same principles of direct action of picking a, a target and i think you mentioned this before i think the power of a single target in a world where there are so many evil companies out there and so many companies um, which are complicit in all of in in oppression that having a single target is 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 good because you're you're focusing your resources into one thing and it's it's geared towards winning and I think for movements you know we have we need successes um, in order to keep going and to keep growing, right? And to build momentum as well. And through one target, you end up um, sending a message to every other company, you know, if you also profit from the genocide of the Palestinians or the people of Yemen or people of Kashmir, then this could happen to you. And it starts to change how companies, um, the risk they're willing to take, you know, because as we said, they, they only care about profits and, you know, for, um, and I think someone said this as well about how Palestine action is making, um, I like to say, a hostile environment for arms companies, you know, in Britain, which obviously is obviously used often to, for against migrants and refugees, but it's like, we should be making it, we are the majority. Um, and I think that we actually have so much in our favor when it comes towards people who understand these issues and that you don't necessarily, if you're in America or, or you know, Denmark or wherever, you don't need everyone to come along with you. You just need enough people to be committed to that change, right? Like every, people still call Nelson Mandela a terrorist, you know, just before he was released. It wasn't that everyone had to be won over. It was just that enough people had to take that concrete committed action in order to create that change. 
And I think that's the that's the power of direct action is that, you know, it's an alliance of the willing. And if you're willing to do it, then, then go for it. And I think in terms of like tactics, like, um, you know, if you're in the US, maybe you don't start with, um, I don't know, going inside and smashing up all of the weapons unless you are willing to take on the consequence of what that would lead to in terms of a potential sentence. But I think you have to get that line just right where you're not, it's not, you have a variety of things that can bring people on board, but it's it's possible to get on the reef and stay there or to lie in front of the front doors and blockade a factory. Um, and you might be facing something a lot lower in terms of the risk. So I think it's something that you, you can play with wherever you are, but the principles, um still apply and I think there is a there is a relatively new group in America I can't don't know what it stands for but it's called Ram Inc um I think it's against the military industrial complex and they've done a couple of actions that have been um people getting on the roof of the Raytheon factory in I don't know what these places are called in America I think Cambridge um and an interrupted a meeting with a war criminal there. And so there is some there is some oh, stuff happening I there. Saw that. It was a video, um, the, a Raytheon representative was speaking at a university. Was that, is that the group? And they came in yeah. and disrupted the, the her lecture. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I thought it was brilliant, but they've also done like rooftop actions. Um, and so it's been great to see that happening over there and so I think these there are sparks of things in different places happening in terms of anti-imperialist direct action um, and uh, and you know alongside Britain in terms of Elbit the US is another like hotbed obviously right um, for Elbit systems Australia as well um, and there have been we saw actually a couple of weeks ago there was an action at one of the Elbit sites in Australia um, as well. And there's been some movement in Germany. So I think for us in Palestine Action, we do focus on where we are and put all of our energy into that. But it's 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 nice to see that the, that's kind of being um, seen by people across the world who are doing similar things in their areas. Oh, so it's yeah. not coordinated. It was people mm. in Australia, people in, I think the, there was one in New York, wasn't there? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, there was a protest there recently. Yeah. Um, the direct action actions were taken independently. It's not like, oh, you've had a meeting over Zoom. <laughs> yeah. No, and actually, no, it was recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Probably taken to the CIA. But like, yeah. yeah. No, there was no meeting. No, there, there actually wasn't. It was, it was spontaneous. And I think that's really like actually, um, that's when you can feel like something is, yeah. when things happen independent of initiatives, like then you're like, okay, this is happening, you know? Wow, is... and I think you don't really realize the reach you have as it's like Palestine action until oh they're, they're doing it you know they're doing it in this place and, wow. and it, it is it's, it's very cool to see that actually it's it is uh, a concept that is growing and I think also it just means that like whatever when you get to that point as well like whatever the government or the state trying to hear to repress activists then there could be a backlash internationally and I think there's a lot of, you know, 
there's it, it's exciting to have a, a movement like that where you don't necessarily have to know everyone in it but you know that you stand for each other, you know? Yeah, and because it's so clear, you know, like a lot of other movements that have been co-opted because they use, you know, because they use language like freedom or like democracy, which we know is nebulous. Um, They use all these key words. It's so easy for like the NED or the CIA to co-opt it or even like Amazon to put like Black Lives Matter on the slogan because the action even if I believe in Black Lives Matter, the, you know, it's not like you're doing a very specific, Albert, shut that down. And this is how you're doing it. You know, it's just, I think it's so clever and like, it gives me a little bit of hope. But um, speaking of uh, killing hope, <laughs> I, I did want to go into that Al Jazeera documentary because um, you were involved in the first episode at least i've only watched the first episode so i'm assuming is that the only one you're in yeah um, yeah, yeah. It's called the crisis the crisis it's, yeah. it's so it's it's uh for those of you who haven't watched it it's the labor files on al jazeera it's a three-part series and the first uh part is the crisis and Hada, you're on it. Am I saying your name right? Hada? Yeah. yeah. Hada. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're in it and you're talking about, I mean, essentially the first episode is about how, um, I guess like Jeremy Corbyn was defeated and all the leftists in the Labour Party were sort of um, pushed out through charges of an- anti-Semitism. Um, and the anti-Semitism definition in the UK was changed to include Zionism, <coughs> right? So that's essentially um, what that for. And it's like it's it's like a it's like a when I was watching it, it's just like very disheartening how effective it was when it's so quite clearly stupid. <laughs> I mean, the yeah, yeah. accusations were, you know, had nothing to do with the anti-Semitism, was to do with Palestine. Um, how did how did you get involved in that documentary? What was your experience with that and, um, and the whole, your whole involvement with labor essentially? Yeah, I mean, I think I only played a, it's just a small part, but I was approached by the um, filmmaker actually two years prior to when eventually it was recorded. Um, but I think it was kind of been in the making for a long time. And um, and I think they were looking for, um, I think because of my experience, I mean, I was involved with, with Labour mostly because I saw... Um, an opportunity which I've never thought existed in British politics before. And that was, you know, Corbyn's era or however you like to call it. And specifically that actually there was room to talk about Palestine and there was room to advance policies which were going to support the people of Palestine and also people in Kashmir and other places. Like it was like for the first time you felt like what should be obvious, like, you know, anti-imperialism. And if people are, you know, people who claim to be anti-racist and then don't acknowledge how that country's role plays in other countries against brown and black people across the world, it's like, this is, you know, the the worst forms of institutional racism in, in, in my eyes anyway. 
And this so it's like, my biggest frustration. <laughs> I mean, living in the States for so long. But yeah. I know, but it's like, it's not just about having like, you know, another lecturer who's of a person of color. It's like, it's it's actually much deeper than that. And I think there's a reason people co-opt these movements, right? It's, it's often, often to stop the politics from going further, you know? To what intangible too, because now it's more about what language you use versus what's actually happening, what's actually happened, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, it's easier yeah. to people up, which is actually, I guess, relevant to this what you were saying about um, what this documentary is about, the labor files. It's so easy to shut people up with certain accusations because you don't want to be accused further. Yeah, and I think that's what was happening. Like, pretty soon, like into this, like, oh, great, there's all this opportunity, and you know, I was um, mostly focused on the arms embargo and trying to push that through. And for me, when I saw all the anti-Semitism things happening, um, it it was it was it was very obvious, like what was happening. But at the same time, the media and the the amount of attention put on showing one narrative and, and, and closing in the other one, it basically meant that the conversation started with anti-Semitism. And when you start a conversation with anti-Semitism, there was no room to talk about actually Palestine and the fact that a lot of these people are being targeted because they're anti-Zionist and they're against Palestinians being displaced from their homes and ethnically cleansed. But when you they start off with those who may, you know, be um feel offended because you're talking about a political ideology that they feel associated with rather than from you know a, a political ideology which is systematically oppressing Palestinians that it's just it's just all so odd and then I it leaves people like me or other Palestinians very frustrated because it doesn't start with okay Zionism for example or let's talk about Palestine you know and it 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 was and I picked up the sign. It was designed that way so that Palestinians couldn't enter the debate, so that there was no room to talk about Palestine. I think I remember even at one point they were like, "Oh, we can't talk about Palestinians right now. We're talking about anti-Semitism." And it's like, well, that's job done. You know, that's what they want. That's what you know. That's what they're trying to achieve here. It's Zionism and anti-Semitism, but really, you can't talk about Palestine. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, that's so. Oh, that's so frustrating. But yeah. I think they did it so it's like everyone feels nervous talking about Palestine. Yeah. Like, are you going to get accused? And then even me as someone who, um, you know, like I'm obviously anti-racist, right? And then obviously against anti-Semitism and all of those things, right? Even me, when I'm talking about my own people's oppression, have to think about every word you say you know, just in case they can manipulate it or whatever. So you always feel like, and now I have it in a different sense, like I have it with the police, but like you always feel like every word you say is like monitored and can be used against you. And so it's very distracting. Um, And it means that you just have to be like on all the time because there are people out there who for a political reason or for, you know, a political reason, again, if it's the police or whatever, are going to want you to mess up so they can use it against you. Right. You know, there's no, none of this is happening in good faith. It's all happening in in bad faith. Um, but I think the main thing that the whole thing was successful in, which wasn't necessarily discussed in the documentary, was that policies like the arms embargo 
um, policies which were in solidarity with um, people in Yemen, the arms bargain between Britain and Saudi Arabia, um, were on that 2019 manifesto. And that was never enacted because this there were so many political backstabbings and using of these accusations and weaponizing it to stop that from happening. And I think that's the that's that's the tragedy that 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 happened. And that was um, a lot of the intended outcome was to make sure that the Corbyn project couldn't be successful. And and you know, in a sense, it's it's also though shown that actually these things you never really to try and you're never going to get a moment like that in the political party anyway. Um, and then I think it made a lot of people like myself realize that, okay, the political process is dead. It is dead. You know, like we cannot put ourselves through trying to appeal to those people anymore, to the government and the politicians, because we've seen the closest we got was completely taken away. And, and that's what pushed Palestine action along, you know? Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm an inclined to agree. I've been kind of off electoral politics for a while now but it i do mm -hmm. think while watching that documentary i'm just like all these people who came up and who are political for the first time because of corbin you know and, yeah. and bernie sanders in the us like that energy is true that energy could be could be moved towards direct action but i think it's like what you were saying there's only a small faction of the willing for direct action. Mm -hmm. So that means there's just like millions and millions and millions of people that want a political home. And um, now that I'm back in the UK, I was like looking at voting and stuff and I want to vote. I wanted to vote for someone. Mm -hmm. I couldn't vote because there was nobody on the ballot to vote for. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to vote for someone, you know, and I was like, oh, what about the Green Party? And um, I've not been so happy with the way the Green Party's messaging is. They just seem to be like neoliberal light or something. Um, maybe I'm not getting their their full message, but that's what it it seems like. And then you tweeted something about one of the ex Green Party leaders. I think that's like she's actually yeah. being sponsored by Elbit right now. Natalie Bennett. Natalie Bennett. Yeah. She's. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I feel, I feel the same. Like there is um, with the Green Party, yeah, Natalie Bennett. So she's been she's going on a, a minimum of fifteen day trip, military course where they and uh, they play dress up and dress up in army uniforms, and it's sponsored by yeah, all the major arms companies, including Albert Systems, which like the Green Party historically has always been quite as you said, probably more neoliberal in their approach, right? Kind of more liberal in general, but um, at least they had like a strong stance in the, on, on, arm, on the arms trade and those kind of issues. But it feels like that, even they are being co-opted and manipulated and, and probably willingly, you know, I think they, it gets to a point where they're just so thirsty for more power that they'll just follow what the establishment wants, because they understand that if you follow the establishment, you have a chance. But if you're anti-establishment, you end up like Corbyn, you know? And I think there's a lot of, there's, yeah. there's, and then there's, there's no heart in any of it anymore. You know, it's, it, it's, 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 it's all feels, um, 
especially I think it, the, the thing is that the, the issue with when the, the, this situation is happening is that there's some people who are still you know really pushy on a certain issue and so then end up negating other issues but it's like you know how can I think if you stand in solidarity with Palestinians how can you vote for someone who calls himself a proud Zionist you know which both Keir Starmer and Liz Truss have done right like you're literally voting in their oppressor like it's it's and and it's the same for a lot of other issues where they might try and champion a little tiny bit on the climate but not really you know um but then you're selling out climate thing is really like that is bs you can't be for climate initiatives or uh, like green initiatives and also for war that that is insane because we know that you know the military is like the number one polluter really um especially the u.s military which has no oversight right so is it yeah it's such a huge contradiction. I can't. Essentially, I'm completely disillusioned. I was, <coughs> I was moved to hope talking to you. And now, I brought the tone down. I brought the tone back down. And um, yeah, I think, I think the thing is that it's not. We're not alone in that. And there was a lot of other people. And actually, the bigger I think the gap becomes between people and the political process. The, you know, the more room there is for actual systemic change, which isn't too superficial. So I yeah, think as well, it's about clinging on to that. So what about stuff like um, enough is enough? Um, that's sort of a new mm-hmm. slogan slash, I'm not sure what it is. Is it a movement? I don't think it's a party. So it's some sort of movement that's come up this year. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not very engaged in, in, in those things. And um. I mean, sometimes I can't keep up either because there's a lot of new things coming up, um, all with similar messaging and similar points. And I think it's it's great to see people mobilised and energised over issues. Um, I think the thing I struggle with now, especially being involved in activism, is is what is the theory of change? And I think people need that as well. You need to know how we're going to get from now there's hundreds of thousands of us protesting. What's the plan? You know, like. Right, they're not gonna. We know that they're not gonna bow down to just uh, to just you know this. What is the the, the long term plan? But I think with general, you know, the strikes happening and all, all of those things happening, I think those are things that have to compel change for people's wages and workers, etc. But there's still a large um, part of politics that that doesn't cover. And often, I mean, you know, for us or for me, you know, that's the anti-imperialist policies are not included in that. Yeah. Not, you know. Um, and so in some ways, it feels like a few years ago, it was all kind of merged into one, like people who were who were protesting for, you know, to be able to against austerity were also protesting for Palestine, but the Demands of enough is enough, I think, are are good in terms of domestic policies, but it's then this, but then the international policy, politics are taken off. And it's like, we have to, we have, you have to, in every part of politics, acknowledge the role this country has played and continues to play in destroying other people's countries. Like, you know, and, and I think when that's taken out, it's just, it doesn't, 
I hope they get some of those demands, you know, um, and, and, and benefit people. But um, I don't if if you're not included, you're, you know, you're a group of people or, or people across the world, then 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 we have to again back to Palestine action and just take a direct action because right. um, yeah I agree I think what's interesting about coming back to the UK is that people in the UK may be more willing to look at the US like if I say oh US war crimes and US complicity they're more likely to recognize that but when I turn it back to the UK a lot of them are like we're not as bad as the US you know there's still a little bit of the denial of of I mean, even though the British Empire predated, yeah. you know, American imperialism, there's still a little bit of that denial. And um, you're right, like we can't, there's, like you said, I think the lessons learned from the purge of Corbynites or Corbyn is that people are siloing their concerns just in case they don't want to, they only want to speak about class issues or scared to speak about Russia now, you know, because once you speak about something once you put it all together, there's like more things that you can be canceled on. Yeah, yeah. You know, so essentially people like being very, very specific. And and I guess that makes sense too, like for the direct action stuff, but it is a bit like, it's a little, <coughs> it's a little disheartening if we're looking for solidarity, essentially. Mm. Um, but yeah. yeah. yeah but, Thank you so much for this conversation. It was amazing. I actually feel very inspired, even though I had to bring it down. <laughs> um, do you have any like um, like last words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to say? Um, not really. Just thank you. I really enjoyed doing this um, podcast, um, even if it's not all been uh, joyful. Um, but. <laughs> But yeah, and I just think if people are inspired by Palestine Actions doing, then you can obviously check out what we're doing on our social media. I think you mentioned it at the start at POW underscore action or check out our website. And um, if people are interested in replicating or doing something similar, then we're always happy to chat to people. Um, yeah, but but thank you for doing for oh. doing this podcast and for, and for what you do in general. Oh, thank you. Um, I did want to say one last thing was just that, you mentioned briefly before we started the podcast where are you just um legally you're saying something like mm. we've got to cover it just where are you legally <laughs> like um so personally so i was supposed to be on trial with seven others um facing different charges conspiracy charges of just to destroy albert um which is quite a fun charge to be charged and, uh, <laughs> and uh, blackmail, which is not so fun. Um, that's just an outlandish charge. Um, but basically that was supposed to happen. I was supposed to be on trial now um, with others for five to six weeks. And that has been postponed a year, um, at least a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, a bad thing in your mind. I mean, I think I think you could take it either way, uh, but it happens. I'll take it as a good thing. Um, but we do have a lot of other cases coming up in Palestine action. And actually today people are on trial for taking action in London. So we are fighting throughout these court cases to prove that Albert is guilty and that we are not, um, and that they have a lot to answer for. But we are seeing in general, there's been a recent trend that Albert are just failing to actually build a 
to build a case or to provide evidence and are reluctant to come to court, um, which has led in cases being delayed or dropped altogether. So it's an ongoing battle, um, which we're kind of in the middle of right now. But I think our main thing in terms of solidarity with us is, is um, we use the hashtag Albert is guilty to push the message that actually it's Albert who we are dragging to court to prove that they are war criminals and that we are um, and that we are innocent because we are fighting against a greater, uh, you know, I think it's not only just in terms of the legal role, but it's the moral thing to do and arguably the legal thing to do. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank Again, you. Um, thank you so much. And um, yeah, we know where to find you at pal underscore action.